Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons on Paul's letter to the Philippians, and I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 as we read the verses 5 through 8. And these verses also form the text for the sermon. Hear God's holy word. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word to our hearts. Dear friends, in almost every family, younger children tend to imitate their older siblings. And parents know this. And that's why they're always telling their older children to set a good example. And what is true in family life is also true in spiritual life. Like our younger siblings, we too need examples. People who demonstrate by their words and actions what it means to live as a true believer. Well, as it turns out, the Bible is full of such examples. There are certainly many negative examples. We think, for example, of Adam and Eve when they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or Noah when he got drunk in his tent. Or Abraham when he tried to produce an heir through Hagar. Or we can think of David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged the murder of her husband Uriah. But there are also, thankfully, many positive examples in the Scriptures, although none of these were perfect, of course. We think of Enoch, who walked with God, or Hezekiah, who restored the true worship of God in Jerusalem, or Moses, who was a faithful servant of the Lord, and who spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. But there is one example that surpasses all of the others, and it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, needless to say, as a perfect man, Christ is a model in everything. He is a model of love, of grace, of compassion, of long-suffering, of leadership and faithfulness. But he is especially a model of humility. And Paul says as much in the passage that we read together, Philippians 2, the verses 5 through 8. The Apostle Paul has been speaking about unity. And as we've observed several times in this series, unity was a serious problem in the congregation at Philippi. This congregation, for all of its other virtues, was not as unified as it should have been. And at the heart of this disunity were two prominent women, Yodius and Syntyche, whom Paul exhorts to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
And Paul was aware of this disunity, and so as a result, in verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, he exhorts the congregation to pursue after unity. First, in verses 1 and 2, he describes what this unity looks like. It involves being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. He also provides four motives to unity. He speaks of the consolation in Christ and the comfort of love and the fellowship of the Spirit and affection and mercy. And then in verses 3 and 4, he outlines the attitudes that are necessary in order to achieve this unity. He speaks of doing nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than oneself, looking out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, now to close off this discussion, the Apostle Paul, in verses 5 through 8, holds up the Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme example of humility. And his point is that we are, if we are ever going to achieve unity in the church, its members must imitate the head of the church, the king of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly as it relates to his humility. And so with this in mind and God's help, let's consider these words under this theme, Christ the model of humility. And we'll consider first of all the depth to which he stooped and secondly the conduct to which he calls. Paul in our text holds up Jesus Christ as the model of humility. And he does so by describing what Christ was and what he became. So what was Christ before he came to this earth? What was he like? And Paul mentions two things. First of all, he says that Christ was, or we could say existed, in the form of God. Now the Greek word that Paul uses here is morphe from which we get the English word morph, which means to change or to transform one thing into something else. And the word morphology, which is the study of how words are formed. Now, Paul uses this word twice in these verses. Once here in verse 6, and again in verse 7. In verse 6, he speaks of Christ being in the form of God. And in verse 7, he speaks of Christ being in the form of a bondservant. This word describes the appearance of something as a reflection of its essential nature. For example, when I see the light of the sun, I know that behind the light is the sun itself. And so it is with Christ. When Paul says that Christ was in the form of God, he means that in whatever form Christ appeared before his incarnation, he was God himself. He was and is of the same essence as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Now to reinforce that, Paul goes on to say that Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now there's a lot of disagreement among commentators as to the meaning of this particular phrase. The wording as we have it here in the New King James, as well as in the King James, suggests that before his incarnation... Christ did not consider equality with God something that he had to grasp or snatch away as a robber grasps for and snatches away loot. And that's true, of course, because as we've just seen, he was in the form of God, meaning he was himself God. Now, several other English versions translate this phrase to mean he did not consider equality with God something that he had to grasp 
and hang on to at all costs. Another suggestion is to interpret what Paul is saying here to mean that although Christ was and remains equal with God, he did not regard that equality as a perk to be exploited for his own advantage. Well, however we translate and interpret this phrase, the point is the same, really. And that is, from all eternity, Christ was God. He was in the form of God, and he was equal with God. Now, that's taught throughout the Scriptures, not just here, but in other places as well. The Scriptures clearly teach that Christ was fully divine. For example, John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, that's speaking about Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or we can think of the words that Thomas spoke to Christ when he saw him after his resurrection. And he fell on his knees before him and said, My Lord and my God. Or Titus 2 verse 13, Paul speaks of the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the scriptures are clear. Christ was fully God. But now notice what he did. Notice what Paul says next. He writes that Christ being in the form of God, and who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. Now what a contrast we have here. Christ was God, and yet he made himself of no reputation. The meaning is that Christ willingly, voluntarily took the lowest place among men. He became a nothing, a nobody. Some other translations translate this word as emptied. And so not he made himself of no reputation, but rather he emptied himself. And there's something to be said for that. When Christ came to this earth, he literally emptied himself, didn't he? He emptied himself, not of his divinity, of course, for he remained divine throughout his entire life and is still divine even now. But rather he emptied himself of the riches, the honor, the glory, and the privileges that he enjoyed from all eternity. As the hymn writer put it, he emptied himself of all but love. And thus, this, Paul says, manifested itself in the role and in the position he assumed. And what was that role or position? Well, Paul tells us he took on him the form of a bondservant. Now, here again, Paul uses the word morphe. First, he said that Christ appeared in the form of God, and now he says he also appeared in the form of a bondservant. And that means how he appeared, or the role that he assumed, was a reflection of what he really was. He not only appeared to be a bondservant, but he became a bondservant. Christ did not take on himself the form of a rich man, a powerful man, or a man with influence. He did not take this highest position in society. No, he took the lowest. He became a bondservant. And Jesus said as much himself, didn't he? In Matthew 20, verses 27 to 28, Jesus said to his disciples these words, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served rather, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Christ became a servant. He, became, he came not to be served, rather, but to serve. And that, of course, required him to become a man. And that's exactly what he did. And Paul acknowledges as much. He came in the likeness of men, he says. Now that took place, of course, in his incarnation. 
When Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, he came in the likeness of men. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it doesn't mean that Christ's humanity was not real, that he only appeared to be human. No, Christ was as human as you and me. And as such, he experienced everything we experience. And the Gospels testify of this. We read in the Gospels that Christ experienced pain and hunger and thirst and fatigue and sorrow and happiness. Christ was as human as you and I are human. So what then does Paul mean by this? Well, by using the word likeness, Paul is telling us that Christ's humanity was similar to ours, but not exactly the same. Specifically, there were two differences between the humanity of Christ and our humanity. In the first place, his and only his humanity was joined in personal union with his divinity, so that he was both fully God and fully man. But secondly, though his humanity was burdened with the consequences of sin, which is why, of course, it was subject to death and and, in, and all these other weaknesses, nevertheless, it was not sinful in itself. We read in Hebrews 4, verse 15, that Christ was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now that cannot be said of any other human being. And Paul knew this, and that's why he writes what he does, that Christ came in the likeness of men. But that's not all. For having come in the likeness of men, Paul also says that Christ humbled himself. Now notice the wording here. He doesn't say he was humbled by others. No, he humbled himself. He did this willingly. He did this voluntarily. How did he do that? Well, by taking upon himself our flesh and blood. And by coming to this earth, earth, a world that hated him, that despised him. He did it by laying aside his divine prerogatives and subjecting himself to the law of God and to the penalties of the law of God. But he did this especially by taking the sins of his people upon himself, bearing their punishment and satisfying the wrath of God in full. Now Paul expresses that in the following phrase, doesn't he? There he says that Christ became obedient. So he who was the ruler of the universe became obedient. Obedient to whom? Well, to his father. He obeyed his father in everything. He faithfully and perfectly proclaimed and carried out the will of his Father all the time that he lived on this earth. And he did so, Paul says, even to the point of death. You see, it was the will of the Father from all eternity that his Son should lay down his life for the sins of his people. And the Son obeyed. Yes, he was obedient even unto death. And not just any death, but the death of the cross. And this was the deepest point of our Lord's humiliation. Because death by crucifixion was the most painful and the most humiliating death imaginable. What is more, it was cursed by God. In Deuteronomy, God pronounces a curse on anyone who is hanged on a tree. God despises this method of execution so much that he commanded the people of Israel never to allow the body of someone who was hanged in this way to remain on the tree overnight. Otherwise, he said, the entire land would be cursed. Well, this is the death that Christ suffered. And Why this particular death? Because this was the price he had to pay to redeem his people from their sins. You see, since God is infinite, 
any sin against God deserves infinite punishment. And there was no more terrible method of execution than that which Christ suffered, the death on the cross. And therefore, Christ died by crucifixion. Now, mention of the cross brings us to the lowest rung on the ladder of Christ's humility. Let's review each one of them in the order in which Paul mentions them. So on the first rung, we see Christ in his pre-incarnate state, in the form of God, considering it not robbery to be equal with God. Then on the next rung, we see Christ taking upon himself our human nature, appearing in the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And on the final rung, we see Christ humbling himself and become, becoming obedient to the point of death, yes, even to the death of the cross. Well, do you see the contrast, dear friends? Christ, who was God, became man. And not just any man, but a bondservant. And not just any bondservant either, but a humble, obedient bondservant who suffered and who died the most painful, the most humiliating, the most cursed death on the cross so that sinners like you and me could be saved. Oh, how great, how deep, how wonderful is the love of Christ for his own. No price was too high. No humiliation was too deep. There was nothing that Christ would not do to save his people from their sins. But as wonderful as this is, why is Paul saying all of this? What's his purpose? And that brings us to our second point. Paul, in our text, has traced the steps of Christ's humiliation. He has taken us, as it were, from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell, where Christ, which Christ experienced on the cross. And in doing so, his purpose, you understand, was not theological, but rather ethical and practical. His purpose was not just to give us a theology of the incarnation, or of the two natures of Christ, or to give us a framework for what theologians would later call Christ's state of humiliation. Rather, his purpose was to provide, us for an, provide for us an example, a model to follow. He's saying to us, as it were, this is what Christ did. Now you must strive to do the same. Now that's clear from verse 5. There Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now the Greek word translated mind here has the sense of attitude or disposition. So Paul here is exhorting the Philippians to adopt the same attitude, the same disposition of Christ. And what was that attitude? How can we describe it? We can describe it with this word, humility. Now what's humility? Humility is having low thoughts of yourself. It's closely related to poverty of spirit. Jesus mentions this in the first beatitude in Matthew chapter 5. And there he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now why does Jesus mention this first? Why is this the first beatitude? That's the first beatitude because it's the root and foundation of all of the others. Meekness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, mourning, 
peacemaking, purity of heart, all of these flow from poverty of spirit or humility. Now, needless to say, humility does not come naturally. By nature, we are anything but humble. We're proud, arrogant, self-seeking, always putting ourselves ahead of others, always thinking of ourselves better than others. So how then do we become humble? That's not our work. This is the work of Christ through his Holy Spirit. Christ himself makes us humble. How does he do that? Well, he does that in several ways. Sometimes he can use sickness or poverty or some other trial in our lives. But he often does this by confronting us with the demands of the law. The law of God describes how we should live before him. But when we come to understand what the law forbids as well as what it requires, then we realize that we have not kept any of the commandments of God, and therefore we deserve his eternal wrath and condemnation. Nor is there anything that we can do ourselves. We cannot make ourselves keep the law of God, for we are prone by nature to hate him and our neighbor. Nor can we offer him our best efforts, because God requires a perfect obedience. And that brings us to an end in ourselves. We come to the point where we realize that we are nothing, we have nothing, and we can do nothing. And then the Spirit of God makes room in our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ. He causes us to see that our only hope is in him, that he alone can make satisfaction for our sins, and he alone can can earn for us the righteousness that we need in order to stand before God and live. And that, in turn, makes us humble. We come to have low thoughts of ourselves, but high thoughts of Christ and of others. And that humility manifests itself in practical ways, specifically in how we relate to other people. And Paul mentions some of these ways in verses 3 and 4. He writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, when we're humble, then we don't put ourselves ahead of others. Rather, we put others ahead of ourselves. And we don't think our thoughts and our ideas and our perspectives are always better, but rather the thoughts and ideas and perspectives of others. And this was precisely the mind, the attitude, the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did nothing, absolutely nothing, through selfish ambition or conceit. He never once looked out not only for his own interests, but always and only for the interests of others. He who was God left the glories and the riches of heaven. He became a bondservant. Yes, he became obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. And why did he do all of this? Well, it certainly was not for himself. It was all for his people. Everything that he did was for the salvation of his people. And now Paul says, we must do the same. We must be humble like Christ. We must be prepared to sacrifice ourselves for others like Christ. We must put put others ahead of ourselves like Christ. In short, we must be imitators of Christ. 
And isn't that precisely what our Lord himself calls us to do? Remember the story when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And when he was finished, what did he say to them? We read of that in John 13. Jesus said this. He said, do you know that what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So if Jesus washed his disciples' feet, then we must wash one another's feet. Now Jesus here is, of course, not to be taken literally, but figuratively. What he means is we need to become the least. We need to put others ahead of ourselves. We need to esteem others better than ourselves. We need to devote ourselves to the service of others, even to lay down our lives for others if we're called to do so. But why does Paul even mention this? Why does he speak here about the humiliation of Christ? Well, remember the context. Paul knew there was a problem with unity in the church at Philippi. There were tensions. There were tensions between some of the members, especially between those two prominent women, Yodius and Syntyche. And Paul was aware of this. He had heard about it. He knew of it. And it grieved him. And it grieved him because it grieved the Lord. And therefore he exhorted them in verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And the only way that that will happen is if we have the mind of Christ, if we deal with one another as he has dealt with us. Well, my friends, does that describe you today? Do you have the mind of Christ? If not, it may well be that you're not a Christian. For a Christian is one who is like Christ. He imitates Christ. He is like Christ in his attitude also towards others, and especially his brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, may God so work in our hearts that we too might have this mind, the mind of Christ, and in this way to preserve the unity of the church of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we would very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how you can contact us and how you can listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website 
at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. That's www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed on your heart a desire to help us with the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X, 2M9. Or you can go to our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.